My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Klein. He is a former firefighter paramedic who spent 25 years serving his community. Klein started his public service career in 1990 as a volunteer firefighter on Long Island. After earning his paramedic credential in 1992, he worked for the New York City EMS system before spending nearly 10 years as a police medic for the Nassau County Police Department. In 2002, he and his family relocated to Georgia, where he continued his career as a firefighter paramedic for a Metro Atlanta department. He ended the full-time portion of his public service as a lieutenant for another department north of Atlanta. Since leaving public service, Klein earned a doctorate from the University of Georgia and currently works in higher education in Wheeling, West Virginia, which is in the panhandle, he just informed me. So, uh, Phil, man, thank you so much. I, I just had the uh, the pleasure, the honor of being on your your podcast stories from the road. Um, so thank you for that. And, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me tonight. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm always glad to talk to a fellow podcaster, especially one that worked in public service for as long as you have. And uh, it's great to be here and, and share the mic with you. Cool, man. Well, uh, yeah, it's always awesome to be able to talk to another podcaster because, you know, it, it seems like the conversation flows a lot more freely. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I want to dig in and, and, uh, really learn more about you. I know some stuff about you, but, uh, you know, where were you born and raised and what was, you know, your, your early formative years like for you? Like what were some of your influences and what led you into the fire service? Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting. So I, I grew up on Long Island and I grew up in a, uh, pretty affluent area in Long Island. And my dad was a union electrician, New York City union electrician. So I grew up with the kids who were whose parents were doctors and lawyers. And, you know, my dad was a blue collar guy. So it I don't want to say it was difficult growing up my younger years. But, you know, I was always labeled the, the kid that was going to be a garbage man. You know, they were all going to go to Yale and Harvard. And, you know, I was going to be the garbage man or the, the guy who worked with his hands. And, you know, I, I think when you're a kid and you hear this all the time, and not that I heard it from teachers, but I heard it from the the kids that I that I went to at least elementary school with. Um, you know, it, it wears on you a little bit, and you start thinking maybe I'm not as smart as these guys, and maybe you know, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money. My 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 dad wanted us to live in a safe neighborhood and uh, wanted us to be part of a, a nice community, but you know, there were some sacrifices that went with that. So when you hear all this stuff, it, it sort of wears on you. And throughout my high school years, uh, you know. I was, uh, I was a troublemaker, right? So, you know, I was trying to fit in, trying to find my way like a lot, a lot of high school kids do. And I realized towards the end of my high school career that I probably wasn't going to go to even a state school, like a, uh, a SUNY school. 
Um, I was going to go do something different. I thought I might've been a musician that didn't work out. It turns out you need a lot of talent for that. And I had more drive than I had talent. Um, but, um, you know, these things happen. So I graduate high school and I go to the local community college. Cause that's, that's what you did if you didn't go away to school and, and, and I failed out. So that's kind of where, that's where everything actually started for me. Right. So I was at the the verge of this failure. I knew I wasn't going to complete my first semester. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be successful like I wanted to be. And uh, I was kind of lost. Right. So um, I was walking to my car and just kind of thinking about things. And by happenstance, I ran into a guy I went to high school with and he had graduated the year before me. And it's, it's a funny story, but he said, you know, Hey man, I'm going to, I'm going to join the volunteer fire department. You should come with me. And I said, I have no desire to be a fireman. I don't want to get burned to death. You can have it. And he said, no, he said, listen, they have a pool table. They have a big screen TV. They've, they've got beer and, and it's a place that you can hang out. You just go there and hang out. And I said, well, that doesn't sound too bad. So I'll go with you. So, so I went down to the local firehouse that night and, um, you know, Jeff introduced me to some of the guys and from there it was history. You know, you hang out for a couple of months, you get to know the guys, they take a vote, whether they're going to let you in or not. And, uh, they let me in and I caught my first house fire the, the next night. And, uh, you know, I was with some, some old FDNY firefighter that had been on the job forever and he was, stick with me kid. And, you know, we go through the front door and we got flames licking over our head and, and, and man, I was excited. Um, and it was, it was the coolest experience of my life. And that was it. That was the spark. And that, uh, you know, that chance meeting with him in the parking lot changed the entire trajectory of my life. And we can talk a little bit about where, where I've gone since then, but that was it. it just meeting a kid I went to high school with. Asking me to go down to the firehouse changed everything. How, how long did you spend in the volunteer department before you decided to like go and get your EMT and paramedic? Yeah. So that's a funny story. Cause I was, I guess I was lucky enough to join a, a firehouse where they also ran ambulances. And if they were, sh they were shorthanded, they would take guys like me that had no training whatsoever as they called us a helper. We'd help carry stuff or whatever we would do. So, you know, we would run like a, a diabetic that was unconscious and to give him some sugar and wake him up or be a heroin overdose and they give him Narcan and wake him up. And, and I thought this was, this was so cool that, you know, you could do all this work in the back of an ambulance. And I wanted, I wanted to do that. And I, and I started getting kind of this feeling that maybe that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So the rule back then was you had to be a firefighter for a year before they would send you to EMT school. So Jeff and I, the guy that I joined with, we didn't want to wait a year. So we found an EMT course that was being offered in Queens and we went on our own. So we were, you know, brand new in the fire department. We were still probationary firefighters. And there we were at EMT school. So we did that. And six months later, after I joined, I became an EMT. And that really opened a lot of doors for me because it wasn't just that I, that I got my EMT certification and now as an EMT, but I recognized that. I wasn't as dumb as I thought I was, you know, I did, I did really well in that class and it was something that I was interested in. So it was something I, I put a lot of effort into. And, uh, so Long Island is, is all mostly, mostly volunteer and volunteer firefighters aren't going to go to paramedic school. It's just too much of a commitment. But if you wanted to work in New York city, you had to be a paramedic. And there was a hospital that was starting to teach EMS classes and they decided they were going to put on the first paramedic program in Nassau County. So I, I, I went to the open house and I filled out the application and it's funny because on the application, and this is, this is really, I think is the only reason why I got into the program on the application, they asked, you know, how do you intend to pay for this? And I was able to write, my mom and dad would write a check. 
So I think they took me because they knew I was a, I was a guaranteed payment because I had no experience. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was 18 or 19 years old. I, I hadn't seen anything yet. And, uh, they took me. So I started paramedic school and I got my paramedic certification. So this is, and, and I think you'll appreciate this. I'm in, I'm in this firehouse and all these guys are EMTCCs or EMTs and they're firefighters and they've been around for 20 or 30 years. And Jeff and I are now paramedics and we're like 20 years old, 22 years old. And I remember I was in the hospital one night and I, we just ran a call. It was me and Jeff and another guy. And he'd been on for like 30 years and he's folding the sheet, putting it on the stretcher. And I'm, I think I was filling out the paperwork and he starts saying, he's like, I'm the senior man here. Why am I the guy that's putting the sheet on the stretcher? And Jeff was walking by right as he said that. And he just looks at him, he goes, because I'm a paramedic. And he just kept on walking. And that was it. Our welcome was worn out. The two paramedics in this firehouse had to go. Uh, <laughs> so I ended up transferring to engine company three. And Jeff, I think he went to engine company one. And we just left the rescue company behind. And, and we were we were fine with that. But uh, it was just, it, it opened so many doors, you know, because I, I, I recognized I could get through EMT school. And then I got through paramedic school. And then eventually, you know, I, I got a couple of jobs. I worked in New York City. And then I worked in Nassau County. And I, I went back to college, which is just bizarre because I never needed to go. I mean, I had a great job with the Nassau County Police Department. I, I should have retired five years ago with a full pension and I would have made a good bit of money. But, you know, I, I quit that. Right. I walked away from college. So when I was working for the police department, I said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to take a class. And I was probably 24, 25 years old at the time. And I just I just took one class and I took it at night. And then I took another class at night. And over the course of probably I don't know, four or five years, I ended up earning enough credits that I could get an associate degree. But early on, I never told anybody that I was going back to school because I was so scared that I was going to fail out again. And I didn't want to be embarrassed. In fact, I was dating a girl at the time and she thought I was cheating on her because I, I was disappearing for two nights a week while I was in college. And I didn't tell her that I was in college. Um, and eventually I had to, but um, I was so scared that I was going to fail out. So I never told anybody. And, and, you know, from there I earned a bachelor's degree and that bachelor's degree allowed me to become a program director later on in my career. So everything sort of fell into place. And I think it all fell into place because of that chance meeting in a parking lot, which just sounds crazy, but it's just funny how these things happen. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you worked for Nassau County police department or is, was it police department, sheriff's department? It was police department. And and then at some point you moved to Georgia. Yeah. Like what, what happened there? Cause I, you know, you don't really hear of a lot of New York guys moving to Georgia. So it was, it was completely against my will. And, and the story that I, that I tell <laughs> is, uh, so I was married at the time. Um, I had a, I had a daughter on the way and nine 11 happened. And uh, so I was, I was actually in the Academy. I was an instructor at the time. I was a paramedic instructor. Um, and when, when that happened, you know, you, we were there, we were in New York, we were close to it. And, and I always preface this by saying the, in the grand scheme of things, I was never in any danger where I was, but nobody knew that on that day. Nobody knew what was next. In fact, the, I was, I was teaching a class of EMTs that morning and I was teaching them about mass casualty incidents and the door opened up. And one of the guys that I taught with said, Hey, a plane just hit the world trade center. And I think my answer was get the fuck out of here, you know, because I thought he was just screwing with me because I was teaching a mass casualty course. Right. So, and, and you know, and then we didn't know. And, and like a lot of people, we thought like a small commuter jet or something that hit it, you know, small plane got off course. 
And then when the second, when the second plane hit, he opened the door again and he said, Hey, send your class home. Everybody's going, everybody's going to work. And uh, these guys have to leave. And that's when I realized, you know, what had happened. Because I left the classroom at that point and the TVs were on and I could see it. And we could actually see the towers. We were on the fifth floor of a, of a building and we could actually see the city skyline from there. And I could see the smoke on the horizon. So um, so we knew what happened. So I had called my wife and I told her, you know, just just go to my parents' house. And, you know, when you're a kid and you and I grew up in the in basically in the 80s and you think about, you know, the Russians coming and you think, well, my parents have a basement. Right. So the basement will be safe. And, you know, it made no sense, but I said, go to the, go to the, my parents' house, because if something happens, they have a basement, you know, so maybe you'll have some safety there. And it didn't make any sense, but that's what I told her to do. So I get released from, from the academy. I get sent out to a post and I still had my New York city. Um, it was a max certification and it allowed me to work in New York city. So they put me in an ambulance that was close to the border in case we had to go into the city. I was still a New York city, city certified medic. And I remember when I was leaving the academy, uh, Tom Cronau, who was a police officer and a medic, and he had been on the job for probably 30 or 40 years, and he looked at me, and, and I'll never forget it. He said, hey, kid, keep your head down. And I got in the elevator, and I rode down. And my first stop was at my parents' house because I kept a lot of my equipment in my parents, obviously, in, my, in the basement, ironically. Uh, but I kept my bulletproof vest there. Every, every police medic was issued a, a vest, and I never wore one. Uh, but I did that day. So I went and picked up my body armor and it was the first time that I think my, my, I knew it was the first time my wife ever saw me put on a vest. Uh, my parents hadn't seen me wear one in a long time. Um, so we got through the day. Uh, I think I came home the next day at some point and, uh, you know, we got through that, that whole thing. My wife had family in Georgia and, you know, we had a kid on the way and I think it really shook her a whole lot, you know, me being involved in that. And we started the conversation of maybe we need to go live somewhere else and maybe we need to do something else. So the, the deal was, she's a, a nurse, the deal was I was going to be a stay-at-home dad with my daughter for a while and do some part-time stuff. And she was going to work and Georgia was cheap living at the time. You know, we bought a four-bedroom house on a third of an acre for under $200,000. We were doing okay. And uh, that, was, that was the deal. So that's how we ended up in Georgia. And I got bored after a couple of years and went back to being a firefighter. Um, but yeah, it was just, just, you know, just that day and just the, the change and then some conversations that took place afterwards, we decided to, to get out of New York. Well, fast forward a little bit from your move and then you, you become a firefighter for, was it the city of Atlanta? No, it was uh, Gwinnett County. So if you watch Netflix, you've probably seen our jail, uh, but Gwinnett County is just Northeast of Atlanta and okay. uh, super busy County, uh, great place to work, good fire department. And I was probably two or three years after I was down there that I just got the itch to go back to work. And I'd been a firefighter in, in New York as well as a vol volunteer firefighter there. Um, so I thought, you know, let's go back into the line of work that I know. You, you start working, you work your way up, you become a lieutenant. And at some point you make the transition to becoming a program director and and walk me through that because now you're in West Virginia and you're, <laughs> you're running a, a program there and well I'm, I'm slowly trying to get my myself back to New York is, is you know I'm, I'm just going I'm going slowly uh, no so I was uh, so I worked for Gwinnett for about five years and during that time I was an adjunct instructor at the local technical college and I always always liked working with students I would like like DMS I like teaching it I like you know impacting students and uh, 
there was another college that had a program that was in trouble. Their program director had left. They were put on probation by the state. They had a whole bunch of inconsistencies with their clinical time. They were really in a mess. And their dean called uh, my boss at the college and said, do you know anybody that would be willing to be a program director or could be a program director? And, you know, because I had gone through and got my bachelor's degree, I had the credentials to do it. So he gave my name and, and the dean and I sat down and we had a conversation and, uh, you know, I, I really wasn't sold at the time. And then we started talking about salary and I was able to double my salary by leaving the fire department and going to higher education. And it, and it, it was tough to leave the fire department, but I came from New York, right? I came from a very traditional fire department. When I left that fire department was a hundred years old and that was 30 years ago or yeah, well, it was about 20 years ago. And that fire department was a hundred years old. We fought fire tra the traditional way. Like we had, you know, every firehouse probably had half a dozen FDNY guys that were also volunteers with us. And we were grateful for that as kids, because as young firefighters, these guys showed us the way. You know, these, these guys were just phenomenal firefighters and would just share their knowledge and would let you do things. You know, uh, we had a we had a guy in my house. Uh, his name was uh, Pete Martin. He was a lieutenant for Rescue 2. And he he was not a guy that would I mean, he could he could do anything, but he was never the guy that said, I'm going to I'm going to lead this call. I'm going to be the guy in charge. He was the guy that would let you be in charge and would stand next to you and make sure that everybody was OK. That was what he did. So we were very fortunate. But when I moved down to Georgia, it was a very different type of firefighting. It was, you know, you didn't go anywhere without a hose line. The, the truck company going in and doing a search without a hose line in place was unheard of. We didn't cut roofs. And I get it. It's new construction. But it just didn't feel the same. It never felt like that traditional fire department that I was used to. It, it, it felt very corporate. Um, so leaving that fire department was not uh, a difficult choice for me. And at the time I was actually, I'd actually moved on to a different department a little further North. I was a Lieutenant for them uh, working in their Academy, doing a lot of training and it just wasn't a, wasn't a good fit for me. So when this opportunity came up, I took it. And I got to be a program director. I got to, I, I got someone handed me my own program and said, you know, do what you got to do. And it was, uh, there was a lot of learning that I had to do. I had I'd never taught a full paramedic program before on my own as the lead instructor and the person that had to put everything together. So I learned a tremendous amount. And I did that for probably about four or five years. And, uh, you know, it just, it just ended up being, becoming a part of me. And I, and I always felt like if I could teach, you know, 10 or 15 kids, how to impact lives, then that's an extension of me impacting those lives. So it, it really felt good. It felt good to be home at night. It felt good to, you know, be able to have the money to take my kids to Disney world, which I probably couldn't do if I had stayed a fire, a firefighter. So, um, it was, a, it was, a probably not your, your classic move. Um, but it's, it served me pretty well. What, what took you to West Virginia? <laughs> so here's the thing. At some point, I would like to be the president of a college, of a, of a community college, and, and really be able to lead it and shape it and, and do the things that, that I think I could do. And, and I've always been, at least from my higher education career, I've always been super innovative. You know, I, I don't follow, I'm a terrible higher education person because I don't think like an academic. I think like a firefighter. And the only path that I see to getting to a president is to get to a vice president first. So, and most community college presidents right now are coming out of workforce and economic development. So West Virginia had an opening and it, it's funny cause I wasn't going to apply for the job. I was like, West Virginia, I'm not going there. And, uh, 
I, so I, I delayed it. I didn't apply for it. Then I finally put an application in, but they kept calling me for additional information. I didn't answer it. It was through a search firm. So I was working with this guy that was from Georgia and he called me up. I was actually at the beach with my family. We had just gotten to the liquor store and he called me up and he's like, listen, you, you gotta, you gotta finish this paperwork because they want to interview you. And I can't send you for an interview unless you finish this paperwork. So I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll take care of it. So I'm on the beach, you know, filling out the questionnaire and sure enough, I got hired. And uh, when I got up here, you know, there is a lot to do in West Virginia as far as the type of work that I want to do. So we have, I work in, in essentially non-credit education right now. So all of your short-term training programs and not just healthcare, but across the board. So we do a 10-week welding academy where you go for 400 hours, you get all your welding certifications, your job ready after 10 weeks. Uh, we do a paramedic program and we do, uh, we started a new paramedic program that wasn't a four credit program. So it's not on the credit side of the college. So it doesn't take you two years and you don't need the five general education classes, you know, your English, your math, your humanities, you don't need any of that. It is soup to nuts, 14 months in and out, you're a paramedic. And that's what the folks up here were hungry for. So we have, I think I was saying before, we have 31 people signed up for our paramedic program and that's unheard of. You're just not getting classes that big. We keep getting people calling us up saying, hey, when's the next one you're going to start? So the work that I'm doing now in higher education, you know, the EMS work is, is always going to be my favorite class. It's always going to be the group that I work with the most. Uh, and, and I'll be honest with you, I have a program director that I give her a lot of credit because it's really difficult to come in and do a job of the per, uh, do the same job that your boss did when they were in that position. And I was a program director before I was anything else in higher ed. And, she, you know, I could... I'm a vice president now, and she's an instructor, basically. I could easily tell her, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. You're going to do it the way I did it, and that's the way it's going to be. And I never do that, and I, and I, I go out of my way to, to not do that. In fact, when I get to work every morning, she's got a question for me. She's like, hey, Phil, what do you think about this? And my answer is always the same thing. It's, you know, it's your program. Do what you want to do. I don't care what you do. If you break something, I'll fix it. But, you know, my job is to move barriers out of your way. My job is not to tell you how to teach your program. And she does a phenomenal job. And every time I get a chance to talk about Linda, I do because she's such a good instructor and she's so good to those students. And she took a job that could have been a really bad situation for her. And it turned out to be a pretty good one, um, really, because I have a million other things going on. And I just won't stick my nose in her program because I have a whole lot of faith in her. But, yeah, that's how I ended up in West Virginia. Um, I'm working as a vice president. And at some point, hopefully someone will give me the opportunity to lead a college and uh, I'll take some of this innovation and some of this growth that I've been able to create. I mean, we, we grew our, our enrollment in the non-credit side by about 300% over the last year. Most colleges are down 10 to 12%. We're 300% up. So uh, I'll take that to another college somewhere at some point when I'm ready to, when I'm ready to move on. But for now, I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. In my experience, the the individuals that work the way up into the fire in the fire department get their advanced degrees and move into leadership positions whether it's within the fire service or somewhere else the the leadership skills don't tend to be there and what you just described is the leadership that everybody wants to be under. And I'm curious, where does that come from? Where, you know, what can you attribute that to? So I had a, I had a chief of department when I, when I got on the job in, in Georgia 
and he had a saying, and I, and I love this saying. The saying is, know your job and do your job. And you've probably heard some variation of that in your career as well. But in the fire service, right, a lieutenant or a captain or a chief tells you, you know, take a hose line to the second floor and go make an attack on the fire or go make a search or go do this or go do that. And you do it. Right? He doesn't come in behind you and say, hey, I'm going to stand here while you do a search of this room to make sure you did it okay. You know, we're firefighters. We get we get a job to do and we do it. And that's all there is to it. There is no, eh, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it later. It, it, that doesn't exist. So I bring I bring to higher education that firefighter mentality. All right. I wouldn't expect to, you know, tell somebody as a as a ranking officer in the fire department to do something and have them not do it. So I don't expect the people in higher education to not do it. The other thing too is, you know, I've been fortunate enough in my career to be around really good leaders, leaders that let you do your job, that didn't stick your nose into it. When I was when I was a brand new program director, I got some great advice from my dean. And, and he said to me, listen, because no matter what you do. I can probably fix it. So don't worry about it. And I say that all the time to my people. I tell, you know, all my new instructors all the time, listen, if you screw it up, just come let me know and I'll find a way to fix it. In fact, we had a, we had a pretty big screw up with our paramedic program. We had never gotten a state number. There was some turmoil in the state office and, you know, Linda called me up and she was ready to resign. She's like, I've screwed this up. This is totally my fault. All these guys are in class and I can be able to graduate. And I said, listen, my rule is I will fix it. And I got on the phone with the state and I fixed it for her. We got the state number. We explained what happened. It wasn't a big deal. Um, so that's just my philosophy is, you know, let people do their jobs and get out of their way. You know, my job is, my job is to move barriers out of their way so they can do their jobs. And that's the philosophy that I bring into higher education. But it's also what I was surrounded by when I was in the fire service. So I, th I think that's where I, I don't think I do anything special. I think it's a lot of common sense. And uh, I, I always toy with the idea of writing a book and I've got a great title for it called firehouse leadership in higher education uh, because the, the two philosophies are very different, right? So, you know, we don't do anything in higher education unless we have a committee formed and we talk about it for three months in the fire service, you know, as well as I do, you do a 360 on a house and within five minutes, you've got an attack plan and you're going to work. Right. So you don't, you know, th there's a huge contrast there. Uh, so for me, I say I'm very unpopular in higher education because I, I, I hate long meetings. I hate putting committees together. I hate talking about stuff. We know the problem. Let's come up with a plan and let's fix it. And that's my approach to higher education. And everybody's looking at me going, we can't do that. We haven't, we haven't talked about this for two months. Like, so in my <laughs> division, I have, I have an employee who tells me all the time that I'm, that I'm just playing a really complicated game of risk. You know, because I try and see just how much I can expand my division, where I can go, how much I can get away with. And, uh, you know, they've listened to me apologize. I've got it down pat. So they know I'm really good at it. And, and most of the time it works. Uh, but we just we just do stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really like being on the non-credit side of college, because if someone knocks on the door tomorrow and says, listen, I, I, I need a program, you know, I need a program on how to cut grass. Well, I could put a program on how to cut grass together the next day. Whereas on the credit side of the college, they've got to form a committee and get curriculum and take it to the state and then run up to the feds for funding. And it's a year long process. I can do stuff in you know, 24, 48 hours, probably that, that quick. Uh, so it's just, just a different philosophy what I'm doing now. But I, I think my leadership really does come from being surrounded by good leaders in the fire service and then you know, a real good leader when I first got into higher ed. You've had to have had some experiences with poor leadership in the fire service. It wasn't all good. No, not at all. 
So I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. Um, you know, there's a, there's some guys in the fire service who think that, you know, brass on their collar means that they can tell you how to run a call. And so we had a, uh, we had a shooting, right. And, and you know, as well as I do shootings, get people excited. Doesn't do anything for me, but people get excited when they hear we've got a gunshot. It's a crime. All this stuff goes through your head and people lose their minds. So we had a guy who was a captain and he was riding up as a battalion chief. And I love telling this story because he's a douchebag. So we, we, um, we pull up to the guy's house and the guy was, was holstering his weapon and he ended up shooting himself in the leg. Now it was questionable if he was looking for some medication, some attention, if he wasn't right, but whatever, he had a gunshot to the leg. It wasn't a big deal. He wasn't bleeding all that bad. Uh, so we get him out to the ambulance and I was on the engine that day. I wasn't on the ambulance, but I hopped in the ambulance to help the guys out. And here comes the battalion car pulling up lights and sirens. Captain chaos jumps out. And he's at the back of the ambulance. He wants a full briefing on what happened. And I'm like, it's not a big deal. Go sit over there. We'll be fine. And uh, the, the medic in the ambulance made the mistake of saying, it's like, hey, I, I can't get an IV. And this guy says, well, this man needs to be in Trendelenburg. And he takes the back of the stretcher and he slams the legs up, right? Now he's shot in the leg. So this guy screams when the legs go up. And the research had just come out that said Trendelenburg does absolutely nothing. Like, it's just, it's just something you do while you're waiting for someone to die. So... I take the stretcher and I put the legs down. I gently tell him, we're, we're just going to leave the legs down. It's not a big deal. He start, and he starts in with me and he starts yelling at me. And we went back and forth a little bit and I was trying to explain to him, we're not going to do this. We end up getting the IV. I jump off the ambulance. They close the door. And this jackass goes up, up one side, down the other, right? He's tearing me apart in the middle of the street. When I tell you to do something, you're going to do it. You don't know who I am, blah, blah, blah. So there's so many things wrong with that call. For starters, he had dropped his paramedic pass, so he was only an EMT. So he really had no say in patient care whatsoever. Second, he was trying to dictate patient care by his rank, which was ridiculous. You know, third, he lost his mind. He had no idea what was going on with this patient. No idea there was a nonsense gunshot wound to begin with. Um, and he was using outdated science. And then on top of it, he went after me in the middle of the street. And I, and I, and I kept my cool and I didn't really go back at him. I just, I think I smiled and I said, I was just trying to do the right thing for the patient, sir. You know, as many times as I could while he was yelling at me and, and my battalion chief, when he came back the next shift, you know, he asked me what happened. And I explained it to him and he tore this guy apart. So that's poor leadership. That's a guy who's trying to stick his nose where it doesn't belong. And examples like that, you know, they do show up and they're good examples of what not to do, of how not to treat people. You know, you'll never see me in any setting tear somebody apart publicly. Now we'll go into my office and we'll have a conversation about what happened. And most of the time we'll figure out where the mistake was and how we can fix it and how it doesn't happen again, because, you know, it doesn't do any good to scream at somebody. You, what you've got to do now is, is fix, is fix the problem. Um, I used to coach a lot of baseball when my kids were younger. And I'll, I'll just tell you another, another quick story about how I lead. And these are kids that I was leading. Right. So, um, you know, my younger son always played rec baseball and, you know, they weren't, they weren't great baseball players, but they went out there and played and had a good time. And I had um, probably nine-year-olds at the time or 10-year-olds. They were, they were little, but they were pitching. And I had a pitcher on the mound that he was just doing terrible. And I said, well, let me go out there and talk to him. And I went out there and I was like, Hey man, what'd you have for lunch? He's like, coach, aren't you going to tell me to do something? I'm like, well, what do you think I'm going to do? Come out here and tell you to throw a strike. Like, you know, to throw a strike, let's go have a conversation about something else. Let's get you calmed down. And then let's see what you can do after I walk away from you. And more times than not, as soon as I went out there and had a conversation about nothing related to baseball at all, you know, I'd say, you know, what'd you have for lunch? You see that girl over there? I think she's looking at you and you know, these are nine, 10 year old kids and they're giggling and, you know, it, but it just calms them down and gets them out of the moment. 
right? And I think stuff like that is more important than me going out there going, your dad's watching, you're embarrassing your family, throw strikes. Now, I would do that with my oldest son because they were travel ball players and you could do that, you know. But with the little kids, you can't you, you can't even joke around like that with them. You've got to just lighten things up. So, you know, that's to me, that's leadership. You know, it's it's not showing somebody that I'm the leader or that I'm the high ranking person here. Leadership is putting somebody in a position where they can be successful. So that's the philosophy that I take. And I, and some of that is because I've seen really bad leaders. What you just said, you know, the, the individuals that are trying to show you that they're in charge or that they are the leader, the individuals that are, and I always use this example when I would teach leadership to the new recruits um, or even within the Lieutenant's Academy or the Battalion Chief's Academy, there's always the, the example and everybody has had one of these guys that says, you're going to do it. And they're grabbing their, their collar where, you know, their, their, their brasses, you know, their bugles or whatever. And they're like, you're going to do it because I say, so I got, you know, I've got the time, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever they got to say. And what I would always tell these classes is like, if you ever have to point out that you have the rank, you are not a leader and you've lost all credibility. So if you ever want to, to lose respect almost immediately, grab your brass and tell people how they should respect you and, and that you're the leader. What the hell, man? No, it makes no sense. And you're hundred percent right. If you have to tell people you're a leader, you're not much of a leader. Yeah. Cause they should have recognized it long before that. Right. You're the kind of guy that I would want to work for. You know, when you, when you're talking about Linda and talking about the faith that you have in her and the incredible job that she does, but the support that you give her is what I, I think probably allows her to feel confident in her own abilities as well. Because, you know, at all of us, when we first start off in a, in a new position, we want to make the boss proud. We want to, you know, let them know that we can do the job that you can trust me. But if you come at them like, you already have that faith. Like, don't worry about it. Like my job is to move the, the obstacles out of your way. You're, you're going to have them. You're going to, you're going to make mistakes. It's okay. I'm going to fix that for you. Do your job. I gotcha. Like, man, if we all could have leaders like that, it would be such a, a, a much better world. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I agree. It, it absolutely would. And, you know, I, I think part of it is also choosing the right person for the position. And I don't mean me, but I mean, I mean her. And, you know, I'll, I'll say one more thing about her. We had two really good candidates and she was one of them. And the other person had years of experience, had been a program director, had been through the accreditation process, which is a difficult process to get through. And Linda had none of that. And we chose Linda over this other guy because just because of her attitude, you know, just because of the way she approached the interview and the way she talked about how passionate she is about teaching students. And, and the other guy was, you know, basically like, Hey, what time is lunch? And who's going to do my marketing for me? And 
you know, all this other stuff. So we chose the right person. And that also made my job really easy because I can have faith in her and I don't have to watch her. And I know that she's not going to do everything hundred percent the way I would do it. And that's okay. Um, she's going to do it the way she's going to do it. And it's, and it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, we're going to fix it. So yeah, it is, it is so important to choose the right people and put them in the right roles. And that makes a lot of difference. Tell me a little bit about your, your podcast and how that has evolved. Like where, what inspired you to start a podcast and then, you know, how really, I mean, it didn't start off as what it is now. So can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah. So I knew I wanted to do a podcast and and actually I was going to write a book. That That's where I, where the story, the title of the podcast came from. I was going to write a book. I had the title picked out. It was going to be called stories from the road and there'd be an ambulance or something or a fire truck on the cover. And I'd tell stories about jobs that I was on and, and all that stuff. And, um, but I never really had the time to do it. And I wrote a dissertation. I didn't really like writing things that long, but what happened when I did my dissertation, I wrote my dissertation on military veterans and I wrote about their experiences into your colleges. And I had the opportunity to sit down with, you know, folks who were military veterans from all different branches of the military. And we had these really great conversations and they were telling me these stories. And I said, man, I'd, I'd love to share stories like that. And I just didn't know how I was going to do it. So again, you know, I thought, well, maybe I could do it in a book, but that really, really didn't work out. And I was bouncing around the idea of maybe researching a, a crime and doing a true crime podcast. And I said, nah, everybody does that. So I, I was sitting around, it was, it was about this time last year. It's probably, probably about a month later around, around Christmas time. And I was actually talking to a buddy of mine and we were just kind of shooting some stories back and forth. And I started thinking about some of the best times I had at the firehouse were, you know, we had this, this old firehouse in downtown Lawrenceville, Georgia, and we had bay doors on both sides. And in the evenings, we'd, we'd go outside and see these old broken down chairs and we would just talk and be eight of us out there just talking. And a lot of us would tell stories about jobs that we went on and different fires, different calls. And some of us were on those calls together and we'd laugh about, you know, we, we had a captain that would always fall down and we'd talk about, you know, Captain Captain Will's helmet being on backwards in the newspaper and just telling these great stories, you know, and we're firefighters, right? So we love telling, I always say we love telling fishing stories because the first time you tell it, you know, your fish is only about a foot long and the you know, the second time you tell the story, you catch a Moby Dick. So we, 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 you know, we just, we have a good time telling stories. We're good at it. It's, it's, it's good for us, right? It's good to keep the traditions alive. So I started thinking, well, maybe I'll contact some of the guys I used to work with and see if they'll come on a podcast and just tell some stories. So I lined up a couple of guests and the first guest I had on ruined the whole podcast for me. His name was Thomas and he retired and we had known each other for years. And he was telling me that, you know, his hypervigilance had kind of relaxed a little bit since he has retired. And he starts telling the story about how he drove past this street and it just flashed back in his head. He saw the ghosts. He saw the ghosts of a fatal car accident he ran 20 years earlier. And he starts talking about that. And he starts talking about how, you know, he would go past the house and he would remember the call that they ran there. And all of these memories are starting to come back and he's not sleeping now. And, you know, he's, he's, fighting with his wife and, and all this stuff is coming back to him. And he starts talking about the cumulative effects of PTSD, you know, on firefighters. 
And that changed the entire dynamic of the podcast because we still tell great stories and I still have guys come on and they're still glad to tell stories. And, you know, I, I'm glad that my friend Vinny comes on all the time because he was a New York city ESU cop. And I don't think he even knows what PTSD is because all of his stories are just hilarious. Um, but he's like the only one that doesn't tie these calls back to how it affected them. But everybody else, as we wrap up our conversation, and sometimes early on in the conversations too, they're talking about how these calls affected them and how it affected their lives and how they coped with it. So what started out as just a bunch of stories really became a conversation about how this job affects you. And whether you're a firefighter, police officer, you know, corrections, dispatch, whatever, this job affects you. I and mean, I don't think anybody ever thinks about dispatchers, right? But, you know, dispatchers take the call with a guy shoots himself on the other side of the phone or dispatchers, you know, I had a dispatcher come on and she told the story about, you know, a, a, a domestic and the guy shot a four-year-old girl while she was on the phone. I mean, that, that will mess you up. And she talks about that story. So it's the, the, the purpose or the mission of the podcast now is to just build this community and, and let folks that have been through some horrific things you know, find some common ground. So we, we talk about it. And I, I told a couple of my stories on the podcast and things that I've dealt with. And I think it's really important that we recognize that we're all going through the same thing, right? We all, we've all had taken that, that baby out of that mother's arms, or we've all ran that, you know, that fatal car wreck and we knew somebody in the car or somebody knew somebody in the car, or we went down that, that hallway trying to pull somebody out and, you know, we're halfway getting burned trying to make a grab because we know somebody's in there and we have to deal with the fact that we failed. You know, so those are the conversations that really come out of this podcast. And and for me, you know, I, I tell people all the time I lose money on every episode that I that I produce, right? Because I'm I'm hosting it and I'm buying people microphones so we get good audio, but it's totally worth it because if somebody's listening to my podcast and they're realizing that what they're going through is what somebody else is going through and they're not alone in this job and they're not alone in the, in the thoughts in their head, then there's some purpose there and there's some impact there. And that's, what's important to me. Um, so I keep doing the podcast and I keep getting people on and I'm, I'm grateful to people like you that have come on my podcast and really just opened up and shared, you know, sometimes really painful stories. Uh, but I think it helps the people that are listening to it that are first responders but I also think it helps the people that aren't first responders to really have a different, you know, they're looking at first responders now through a very different lens because they're starting to realize, you know, what they go through, you know, you're signing up for a job, but you're not signing up for what it does to you uh, and what it does to your, to your mind. So this podcast now is really just, it's my mission to just share these stories, to build that community and to make sure the first responders know they're not alone in the work that they do. You know, when we had our conversation on on your show, um, I, I mean, I don't even really remember our conversation, you know. Uh, I, I look forward to listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, so <laughs> it'll be there for you. But what stood out to me about, you know, about our conversation, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but what stood out to me is, the way your career ended, I never expected you to say that. And, and to me, that's the cumulative effect of PTSD that you never dealt with in your career. And, you know, I'm, I mean, I was shocked that you, that you shared that with me and that you shared that with people that are listening to it. Um, but I think it's so important to recognize that, 
you know, this, this job affects you and it changes you. And, and our reaction to it is not always what people on the outside would see as a normal reaction. But for us, it's the only way we can react. It's, 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 it's really a screaming for help. And if something doesn't give, then you end up putting a bullet in your head. And, and on my job in, in Georgia, in two years, we lost five guys to suicide. And that's only, it's a 800, 800 member department, five suicides in two years. And they weren't, you know, these guys were, they were battalion chiefs or, you know, newly retired guys, but it's crazy that we're losing all these people. Like it, line of duty death doesn't scare me anymore. Yeah. It's the suicides that are scared. That should be scaring anybody that's a, that's a first responder because that's where we're losing it. So, and I thought what, what you did on my podcast was, was incredibly brave. And again, it, it wasn't something that I ever expected to hear. Um, I didn't know that you would ever, ever say that, but you did. And that really struck me. That was the moment where I was, I was just like you, I was speechless and I, you know, really was grateful that you opened up, but um, something that I didn't expect to hear. The thing, so recently it, it struck me because I, I learned of, of two different suicides um, from, from firefighters. One was, you know, fairly new, you know, compared to us um you know only a couple of years and then you know you got guys that are retired they've been retired for years and they just can't deal with it anymore and what does that say about our culture though you know i mean i really feel like we could do more for one another because, I mean, these are good guys, you know, and, and sometimes we don't, we don't, you know, give our, our brothers and sisters the space to open up because it, it's, it's fun to fucking rag on the new guy that is like, you know, being a sissy or something, you know what I mean? It's like, no, it is. It is. And it's, and it's our culture, right? But you and I started, you probably started around the same time I did, you know, probably early nineties. And, you know, if, if something, and in fact, I think you talked about it. if something bothered you, you know, the senior guy was like, ah, shut up, you pussy. You know, yeah. if you can't take this job, get out of here. Yeah. And I think that, I think the good thing is, is that slowly that's starting to change. And I think departments are starting to really recognize what this job does. And we have things like critical incident stress to briefing teams. And, um, you know, we have EAPs, but there's still so much more that that's gotta be done. Um, because, you know, it, the retired guys are the ones that, that I think stand out the most because like Thomas said, when he was, when he was a firefighter, drove past that road all the time, nothing, but now he's relaxing, right? He's not at that alert state. He doesn't sit with his back to the door anymore. Or, or, or facing the door, right? He doesn't do that anymore. He's, he's calmed down and now he's starting to crack. Now that stuff's starting to come up. So we've got to do a better job in public service as a whole in supporting our members and normalizing getting help, not ridiculing somebody for, for needing it. It should be, you know, getting help should be as you fall off a building and break your leg. 
getting help because you just ran a horrific call that involved a kid, it should be the same thing. And it's, and it's clearly not. Yeah. I mean, I would think that something like this has got to exist, but I haven't heard of anything. And I mean, but I, I, there's got to be, you know, maybe you've heard of uh, like a, a group, uh, you know, because there's groups for combat vets. They get together and they they talk about their their shit, and it's in a an environment where you know outside those walls, you know, you don't, it's like AA. You know, when you're there, that's the group that you talk to. When you leave, that that stuff stays there. You know, and. I don't know of anything like that for, for firefighters. So I, I think there are groups like that. I think there's pockets, right? So I, I talked to, to one guy not too long ago and he, this, this guy has a farm and first responders go out there and just spend the day out there just decompressing. And I don't know if they have groups like you're talking about, but it's geared towards first responders. I think it's, I think it's mostly paramedics and, and EMTs and they can just go out there and hang out. It's all folks that have done the same job. So there's that. There's a group called Next Rung, which is uh, actually a guy I worked with um, in Gwinnett. Um, he and another firefighter started that group, and that's a, a phone call. They manned the phone themselves for a couple of years, and if you were struggling, right, there's a, there's a difference between calling somebody up and talking to, you know, like a suicide hotline or talking to a firefighter on the other side of the phone, and that's what they do. So they support firefighters that way. But I, I, I agree with you, and I, I think it's something that you know, we need to do as a whole and, I, and the collectively, the collective we is start setting up these groups. And, and maybe it looks like AA where you go and you say, Hey, I'm a firefighter and, you know, I'm having some trouble and, and this is what it, and you just go and talk about it. And the, so I think one of the, one of the things that's interesting about my podcast is people will open up to me and I think they do it because I'm a firefighter, I'm a paramedic. I've seen it. I have the same scars that they have. And it's very different to open up to me or to you, someone who's been there as, as opposed to somebody who hasn't been there. So I think it's more likely that they would talk to another first responder than they would talk to a, just a therapist. And I think that's why next rung is so important because you know, you're talking to a firefighter or a peer counselor. Yeah. Um, I think these groups are starting to pop up. I'm hearing a little bit about it, uh, but certainly not enough. And I, and I think it's something that, that I agree with you. It's something that is absolutely needed out there. We need a, we need a group we can talk to and, and talk about these things, you know, without being ridiculed. Well, I, I would encourage everyone. You got to check out Phil's Phil's podcast stories from the road brother. And thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. It, it's really got my wheels turning and, um, really made me think about a lot of things and and I, and I feel like there there's so much value in this conversation that the people listening um you know just learning well these these leadership skills and you know even those people starting off their careers that might think that they don't have the uh the bandwidth to to operate at a high level sometimes it's just you haven't found your niche yet and and when you find that groove when you when you find that path that you're supposed to be on you will excel um so yeah man thank you so much for sharing with us and um 
I, I would encourage everybody to, to check out your podcast and uh, keep an eye out for, for your book. <laughs> now I've got an assignment. Well, if anybody wants to listen to the podcast, it's uh, if they go to the website, it's stories from the road podcast.com. And uh, if anybody has a story to share, they're welcome to fit. We have a little form on the, on the website. They can fill out the form and I'd love to, sh- to, to share some folk stories. So, um, and thank you for having me on, on the, on your show. It, it's, it's always strange for me to be on this side of the microphone and, and being the person on the spot, but I really enjoyed it. And I, I certainly enjoyed talking a little bit about my history and sharing it with your listeners and hopefully it resonates with somebody. So thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, for, for those that might be interested in, in being a guest on your show, who do you primarily interview? Is it, is it primarily firefighters, paramedics, law enforcement, veterans, uh, I do, I do a mix. So um, I focus on first responders. So typically uh, fire police, CMS, uh, dispatchers, you know, if a veteran wants to come on and tell a story, we're certainly open to it. Uh, but anybody that ha- that works as a first responder and has a story to share. And and the, the caveat is that I don't want, and I always end up getting them, but I, I don't ever ask anybody for their worst story. Um, all I ask for is a story. And, and sometimes I like the funny ones or the things that just went, went crazy and um, inevitably somebody comes on and said, this is the worst call in my career and I'm going to share it with you. And, and I'm grateful that they do. I really am. Uh, but I, I don't want people to think that they have to come on my podcast and tell me the worst call of their career because they, they certainly don't. Uh, but I, I think people feel comfortable and they want to share that call and they want to get it out there. And, and I'm fine with that. And we can have that conversation, but it, it certainly isn't necessary. Um, I'll, I'll take story after story and uh, the funny ones are okay too. All right. Well, let's end on a, a lighter note. What's the funniest story you got, man? I I was just talking about this, you know, um, we were called, so I, I had a fire chief and, and his saying was, we don't define the service, we provide it. Because you always get those calls like, man, I don't want to do this. So um, one of the funnier ones that I ran, I got called, it's probably two o'clock in the morning. And uh, we're about a mile away from the hospital and this woman calls and uh, I, I was with, I was with my Lieutenant and bad stuff always happened when I rode with Jimmy and he hated being on the ambulance. So me and Jimmy are stuck on the ambulance one night and we get this woman, she's like sitting at a bus stop and she says, I want to go to the hospital. And I said, well, okay. I said, well, what's the matter? She goes, nothing's the matter. I just, I, I want to go to the hospital. And I said, well, you know, you can take a cab or, you know, we're going to charge you a thousand dollars. Cause that, at the time an ALS ambulance was a thousand dollars. I said, we're going to charge you a thousand dollars to take you a mile up the road to the hospital. Are you sure we can't call you a cab or wait with you until a bus comes or something? And, and I genuinely was concerned about this woman having to pay a bill for what, what, a, you know, what really was a taxi cab ride. So she says, uh, she goes, no, I, I want to go by ambulance. And I said, okay. So I go to take her arm. <laughs> And I said, well, let me walk you over to the ambulance. She goes, no, no, no. For a thousand dollars, you go get the stretcher. You're going to wheel me to the ambulance. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> we had to put her on the stretcher. We had a wheeler in there. She wanted a blanket. She wanted a pillow and she was comfortable. And we drove her up to the hospital, but she was getting her money's worth. Uh, yeah. Well, on that note, brother. I hope you have a great night and it's, it's so fantastic that we don't have to do that shit anymore. Huh? (laughs) (laughs) You're You're absolutely right. Thanks again for having me. You have a great night as well. And uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.